We're going to check in with Premier Danielle Smith, uh, see how things are going for her, and uh, talk about a couple of the issues. Uh, Premier, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate your time. You bet. My pleasure. Hi, Shay. Uh, noticed you were in Tabor this weekend, so things have slowed down a little bit. Hey, I mean, we're, we're, we're not at the same breakneck, never-take-a-moment uh, pace that we were. Are we into the, the dog days of summer, would you say? Oh, boy. I think my husband might disagree with you. I've been on the road a lot for the last couple of months because part of what's so great about summer is all the fairs and festivals yes, yeah. and rodeo and chalk wagon races. So I, so go, going down to the, the Tabor Corn Fest, I think, was the last of my summer summer travel. I've got one more to go. I've got uh, rodeo in my in my home riding on the weekend. But that, that I think, is uh, all. We're getting almost to the end of summer, the official end of summer. And like you say, never, never completely slows down. There's no question. A um, couple of the issues I wanted to talk to you about, and, and you've sat in this chair and you know how it goes. People have a problem they reach out they, and they come looking to us for help and uh, one of the things that i heard from a lot of listeners over the last couple of weeks at least and maybe even a little bit before that is their electricity bills higher than they have ever seen before in some cases like ridiculously high several hundred dollars five hundred dollars we know it's orders of magnitude higher than other provinces in canada what should i be telling them i mean they, they, they've got a point it's out of control right now in alberta premier it, it completely is there's, there's parts of the electricity system as we set it up that made a lot of sense when our base load power was coal. Because when we had coal, we were able to have long-term power purchase agreements that lasted for 25 years or longer that we could guarantee three cents a kilowatt hour. But because of the early phase out of coal, we're now left to the fluctuations. Then there's two things that are causing the fluctuation. One is gas prices and the availability of natural gas, and that is highly variable. And the other thing, of course, is wind and solar, which are the other large component of our grid, which are intermittent. And so when they come on, great, it can drive prices down, but when they're off, then we have to pay a premium to bring natural gas plants on to, to, to make up the difference. So we know that we've got a, a market system that was designed for one type of fuel, and now it's transitioned to something else, and we've got, we've got to make some changes in order to be able to secure that base load power. That's what we're working on right now. Yeah. I know that my electricity minister has done a ton of consultation. I asked him how far he's gotten on it. He's got 200 pages of notes, and he's going to have a full suite of reforms that we'll, we'll need to, to, to put in place with in the next six months to a year to make sure that people have reliable and affordable power. So that's the timeline, six months to a year before people can see some relief? Because, I mean, they're, they're talking about this month a higher bill than they've ever seen before. Yeah, I know it's tough when you get into summer because there's yeah, high yeah. electricity demand with the uh, air conditioning. And then, we, I mean, I would hope that by the time we get into the, uh, the the cold days of winter, January, February, March are normally our worst days. I, I would hope that what we'll see is some um, some uh, some approaches and policy that the that we'll be able to announce in the fall. And I'm I'm really hopeful that'll make a difference as we get into the winter season. Um, Premier Smith, you still there? Did I lose you? No, I am. Oh, you're still there. Okay, gotcha. Um, There's been so much heartbreak and hardship in Western Canada over the past month or so because of these wildfires. I know you got to spend some time with the Premier of the Northwest Territories. Um, Last Friday, I think it was, uh, so many of them evacuated to Alberta. Two-thirds of the territory has has been forced to flee. Tell us about your time with Carolyn Cochran, what it was like, uh, what, what she had to say to you about what they've been going through. Oh boy, that was uh, pretty a lot of tears when I toured the evacuation center with her. People who are really terrified. I mean, they're watching what's happening on the news as well. Hay River is the community that's most at risk. The fire at least has been holding around uh, Yellowknife. I think it's still 17 kilometers away. So everybody's fingers crossed that it doesn't encroach any closer to the to the city. But it is not easy when you have to evacuate. Many many of her residents have never left the Northwest Territories and have never been in a city as large as Calgary or Edmonton. 
Washington. So they're feeling really disrupted, worried about what's happening back home. And so uh, right now I gathered today that she's having a cabinet meeting with her with her cabinet to just f- figure out when, when might be a safe time to start thinking of return, particularly for Yellowknife. But they're still right in the middle of fighting some pretty terrible fires. Our province, of course, doing what we can, but as you know, Edmonton put up the no vacancy sign. We're maxed. I mean, we're full uh, at this point. I mean, is there more that Alberta can do? I think I think we're doing a great job. But are you looking at other other supports that we might be able to offer? Well, I, I think as well. I mean, that's the conversation that they'll be having to have this week. Is, yeah. Does the because that's what we had to do as well. We all, we evacuated communities when the fire was getting within five kilometers of the border because it can move very quickly. And when some fire jumps over into a town, that's when you end up with real devastation. So they're going to have to make that assessment risk. The problem was Yellowknife was pretty well surrounded. There were multiple fires encroaching from all areas. So that's one of the things that they'll have to have a look at. We of course are are prepared to do as much as we can. We know British. Columbia might have some capacity. It sounds like things are, are calming down a little bit more for them in the Shushwap, so they may be able to help a little bit more. Maybe Saskatchewan and Manitoba will be able to help a little bit more. But I think everybody is hoping that if we can stabilize Yellowknife, then that large municipality of, of folks will be able to return home, and yeah. then they, they'll be able to start, we'll be able to still continue providing targeted support for the smaller centers. Yeah, which would help with about 20,000 people having a place to go back to, no Correct. question. Um, I'm getting calls, and, and uh, they're asking about seeing a doctor, seeing a surgeon, things like mm-hmm. that. And, and that sort of feeds into a couple of things I want to talk about. First of all, we know that's a problem. We, we've got province of, or city of Edmonton right now at this point reporting that there are no female doctors available. I mean, we hear stories like this. Um, how, how much progress is being made on that front in terms of we know there are some real, real choke points when it comes to the healthcare system and we know we need to add labor to it. Are we making progress on that front? Well, everyone needs to have a primary care practitioner. That's, I think, what, what should be our goal. And one of the things that I discovered over the, the last year is that the doctors have a lot of options. Primary care doctors have a lot of options. They can have private practice. They can work in a hospital. They can be a physician's assistant. And so even though we only have, we do have 4,500 doctors who are registered to do primary care practice, I'm told it's only 2,500 to 3,000 that are seeing patients on a daily basis. So that means we have to move to more towards what we've been talking about for many, many years and what they did so well at Crowfoot Center is have a true integrated family practice with multiple different health professionals that allow doctors the ability to see patients but also work at the hospital, have nurse practitioners embedded in there, have additional health practitioners as well. So we, we've got an agreement with the, with the doctors to work on an alternative payments model that will allow for team practice. We're in the middle of discussions with nurse practitioners about how we would be able to have them lead practices as well. And those are the, that's where I think our solution needs to lie. We, we just have simply found that uh, as doctors go through school, uh, the bulk of them want to specialize. We're only having 10% of our, our medical class graduating wanting to get into primary care. And so when I, I had a meeting recently with the primary care doctors, and I, they came up with some really good suggestions. They said, if you want more primary care doctors, particularly in the rural areas, train them in the rural areas. So maybe we use the uh, Grand, Grand Prairie um, uh, universities and the uh, Lethbridge University as as places to, cha- to train alternative medical professionals or train medical professionals alternatively so that we have uh, have more options and that we're also incentivizing uh, doctors who, who want to get into that primary care practice. So there's a lot of things that are going on. We recognize it's kind of the key to making sure the whole yeah. system works. Because if you don't have a primary care 
practitioner and you get sick, you go to an emergency room. And it's part of the reason why our, our emergency rooms are overcrowded. So there's multiple things that, that our new health minister is working on rolling out. Um, one other thing that's happening today and happened over the weekend and for the next few days, of course, kids going back to school, and that includes university students moving into residence, those that manage to find a place in residence. We've had both the U of C and the U of A on the air recently talking about students living in their cars and deciding not to go to school because they can't find a place to say, what can we do about this housing crisis? in Albert. I mean, in a way, it's sort of a self-created problem because we've done such a good job or your government has done such a good job in attracting people to come here. We know Jason Kenney started the campaign, you know, come move to Alberta, you can afford a house. Well, they did uh, to the tune of about 10000 a month. But now that just puts more pressure on the systems that have pressure. So how do you manage that? I mean, it, it, it's a good thing, bad thing at the same time. What's the solution here? Well, I've been watching to see what's happening at the federal level because I, I think they are now assessing their own policies because a few, I think 10 years ago, we used to bring in something in the order of about 300,000 international students. And this year we're on track to bring in a million. So when you think about uh, students coming in, focusing on their studies, they're, uh, they're not earning a market wage. And so they're going to be pinched on what they can afford. But that's also a lot of additional people, um, especially in our university towns that have to be integrated at a time that we are trying to attract more people here in the skilled trades and the health profession and child care. So I'm, I'm watching to see what the federal government is going to do about that because it sounds like they're doing a reassessment of that policy because that's not fair to the foreign students either. They come here hoping to be able to get a great education and it's um, it's got to be very frustrating for them to be feeling so pinched. So I, I, it really is the federal government that leads on that and so we'll be, we'll be watching to see what kind of policy change they have. That being said, I'm watching with great interest as I mentioned um, when, I, when I spoke with Oh, when I spoke on the on the weekend with Wayne, well, I'm watching with great interest what's happening in Calgary about the kind of proposals that they have yeah. to streamline housing, and I, I think they've got some really great ideas there that will require us to make some changes. And so I think that comes before council on September 14th, and and that may be a model for what we need to look at in other jurisdictions. So what's the provincial government's role in this housing situation? Is it all the feds and all municipalities? I mean, uh, where does the provincial government fit into as to what you might be able to do? But the, a couple things is I think we all need to figure out where uh, land is that's under our jurisdiction because that is uh, one of the really big proposals that I think would make a huge difference that the city's contemplating is can you make that land available on a 99-year lease so that the cost of the land doesn't get built into the cost of the unit on top of it. I think that w- is one way that we can help bring the cost down because sometimes it's $200,000 for the lot. And so that would be one major, major change. I think they're also looking at ways to be able to... Uh, um, have a reprieve on property tax revenue for a time well those to incentivize the construction and they would want us to partner with them on that so that they would have a reprieve on the municipal tax as well as our education portion of the property tax i don't know how long the period would be that they would propose but even a five-year reprieve would probably be sufficient to encourage uh, encourage that change and then they also want us to make sure that they have a streamlined ability to uh, make zoning changes i think we have a land mm-hmm. use planning process defined in our municipal government act and if if we have barriers in the way that are caused by our legislation, yeah, we better change that too. So those are the three things that have come out that have caught my attention about what they'll be asking us for. And I've already raised it with uh, Jason Nixon and Rick McIver, the two ministers who are on this file. So we'll see what gets passed on uh, on the 14th and, and we'll be prepared to respond to it quickly. Chatting with Premier-
Premier Daniel Smith, and uh, I, I, I don't want to keep you much longer. I probably kept you longer than I said I would. Last question here, and, I, and you probably, I know you saw the report this weekend from Pembina Institute talking about investment and jobs that will be lost because of the moratorium on renewable energy in our province. And, you know, admittedly, the numbers they say are, are speculative, and there's some dispute as to what those numbers shape down to. So I'm wondering, we've heard other people come up with estimates about what the impact of this will be. What was yours? Surely your government plotted out the potential impact on our province in terms of jobs and investment. What are the government's numbers as to what's at risk here with this moratorium? Well, I don't think very much is going to be at risk. It's, it's going to be a, a difference of where these projects get cited as opposed to whether they go ahead at all. And I'll give you an example because I was just downtown, uh, down south visiting a potato farmer who was, um, he gets $7,000 per acre is the value of his irrigated land for potatoes because potatoes is a very high crop. But he's also in, installing a biogas facility, including solar panels. And it, he made a point of saying, I'm going to put the solar panels over there on my septic field because my land is too valuable valuable to put solar panels on it. And I thought, okay, well, that's, uh, that's, I think, the kind of approach that people want to take is where do we site these solar panels so that they don't interfere with production? They don't inter- interfere with pivots. They don't interfere with spraying. And I think that that's the, the framework that I have. I've also gone to the Lethbridge Exhibition Center, and they, they built their massive complex with the idea that they want solar panels on the roof. Um, I've talked to, uh, the, uh, to uh, the, the, the folks who own West Edmonton Mall, and they're very keen to put pol- solar panels on their roof. I I've often wondered why it is we, we penalize those who want to use existing space to add solar panels to defray their costs. We don't give them any break on distribution and transmission charges, even though it doesn't cost anything for transmi- additional for transmission and distribution when they cite them there. So that's the conversation we're having is what is the right place for those kinds of, of operations? The second thing that I'm quite concerned about is the reclamation costs. As you know, I've been a property rights advocate in in various points in my career, and I've been very concerned about oil and gas reclamation. That's why we're taking action on that. But we also have to be mindful that we can't create a problem today that somebody 25 years from now is going to be trying to solve. And the, the latest estimate that I have for each one of those wind turbines having cost of reclamation is 850 cubic meters of cement that's at the base. It's a tower the size of the Calgary Tower. It's massive blades. The, the, it's about 700 hundred thousand dollars for each turbine for a reclamation cost if you've got a 50 turbine facility at the end of life that's a 20 over 25 million dollars is is any money being put aside for that those are the kind of questions i have because i don't want to leave a new problem at just as we're dealing with a legacy problem and and as we start developing some of that policy people will understand it's a difference of where do we cite it how are we taking care of the end of life reclamation cost and and i think we'll be able to proceed right now we get a i think about 75% of all of the investment of wind and solar in the entire country. That's how how good an environment we have. And I suspect we're going to continue to have the lion's share of solar and wind in the entire country. But we've got to get these policies right. So you're not concerned at all? I mean, you you talk about uncertainty being injected into the oil and gas system because, because of the federal government and their changes, and people just won't invest because of the uncertainty. You don't think there's a parallel argument to be made with uncertainty being injected into the renewables industry in Alberta based on what we've seen? Well, my number one goal in the electricity system is to make sure it doesn't fail in winter. And that's another aspect to this as well, is wind and solar are great, but they're not reliable. And so we have to figure out a system that will allow for us to bring on base load power at the same time as we're bringing on wind and solar. And right now, we just don't have an environment where those other projects are being incentivized. So we have a lot of things that we have to solve all at once here. Because when, when I saw that 
that our, our power grid almost failed seven times. And on two of those days, wind and solar were producing less than 100 megawatts of power, even though we've got 5,000 megawatts installed. We, we have to make sure that we're bringing on both uh, to make sure that in our coldest days and our hottest days that people are taken care of and don't have to worry about the lights coming on and being able to turn their furnace on. Federal government has all that built in, though. I mean, they're not saying you can't have a natural gas plant. I mean, if you come up with carbon capture and the rest, you're, you're fine to operate. If it's a plant that's already in place, you can operate it for another 20 years. Uh, you know, I wish that carbon capture was as perfect as they think it is. I mean, they, they say that uh, it has to abate 95% of the yeah. emissions by 2035, or you go to jail. Like, let's be clear about what it means. It's it's criminal jail time. And so what um, I can tell you, I've talked to many generators over the last number of, of weeks, and none of them, well, the, their board of directors just won't let them take that risk because they can't promise that. Same thing with the peaker plants. Those are the ones that come on when the wind isn't yeah. blowing and the sun's not Very shining. limited hours. They, yeah, they only want 450 yeah. hours. I, I've also talked to those who were on peaker plants. They say the minimum that they operate in a year is typically over 2,000 hours. So there's some negotiations we've got to do with the federal government to make them be reasonable about this. Because part of the reason we do or have been able to bring on so much wind and solar is we do have the natural gas backup able to easily come on. And if they interfere with that, they're, they're messing with the entire market. So we're, we're having those negotiations now. We've, we're just setting up a a table where uh, they've got negotiators on their side and on our side, and we're hoping to be able to get to some common ground so that we can be carbon neutral by 2050. We think that that's a reasonable target. It's a target that they're setting around the world. My environment minister just got back from Germany, and that's what they're talking about, being carbon neutral between 2045 and 2050. I think that we should be in alignment with where our biggest trading partners are and make sure that we're doing this in a way that protects people from an affordability point of view, but most importantly, from a reliability point of view. That's got to be the number one thing that we consider as we bring power on. Is it, is it going to be there when people need it? Premier Smith, thank you so much for your time. I kept you much longer than I said it would, so thank My you pleasure. for joining us.